Testing, testing. Boop, 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 boop. Well, that was great. How'd you do that sound? What was that sound? Was that you? Oh, the boop, 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 boop. That's my robot noise. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Boop, 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 boop. Someday I'll be able to do a robot noise. Someday, Marshall. Someday when you transform from human to cyborg to then full robot. Dispel nervousness. Extra breaths. (laughs) Woo! Hi, James. We're all in. Hi, Marshall. Hi, Stan. Marshall, you're not singing. Wherever you go, whatever you do, whatever I say. Here it goes. James, we were born almost exactly the same time. Well, within a month or two of each other. June 1958, roughly? Yeah, and me July 1958. So, that means that we, uh, we share... The establishment of celebrating when fax machines came in. So, if there's anything to chronological determinism, we're living proof. I really, when I hear you talking about what it was like for you growing up, Uh I feel like I identify with it a lot. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. Oh, it's great to meet another old guy. (laughs) And I know Stan often gives you a hard time for being the age you are, but Stan, you're not getting any younger yourself. I know. It's all in yeah. just good fun. Maybe we should start talking about generational stuff since now no. this is the first time it's two old guys against one young guy. Oh, come on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> come on. Let's get in the ring. You're still both old. That doesn't change the fact. But that means we made it this far. You're almost there, guys. <laughs> You're almost done. Okay. <laughs> You're almost there. <laughs> oh, okay. You you won. You got it. And with age comes wisdom, let's hope. Welcome back, everybody. This is the Draftsman Podcast. It sure is. And today we have James Gurney. James, we always start our episodes with an awkward intro. Yeah. So we we gotta um we gotta make this awkward. What's slightly awkward about this whole interview is that you guys can't see me and I can't see you. I think we're used to Zoom yeah. calls. Yeah. Uh, it'll look like we're all in the same room or we're all looking at each other, but you're just hearing my voice on a corded telephone <laughs> and I'll send you the video and audio files. And anything I refer to, I can show you with a, I can send you a file and cut in. So, oh. we're actually blind to each other talking about visual things. Like a, a rotary dial phone? This is a touch-tone phone, but it does mm. have a twirly cord connecting the handset to the receiver. I tried using the cell phone, but uh, your guy Charlie said that it was breaking up, so oh, okay. I'm not quite in the modern yeah. age here. Let us know well, when you're, your you're ear in, starts are getting... Are you in New York? <laughs> this is going to be difficult. Sorry. You guys have to work this out. You're doing a podcast it... <laughs> here. No, we're in New York here. We're far from the cell towers, so we're, we're working with landlines, yeah. Uh, and in fact, when we first moved to Rhinebeck about 35, 40 years ago, uh, there was a, a woman uh, working at the switchboard and you could actually look in through the window and watch her uh, connecting calls. Really? And uh, that's, that's how primitive it was when we moved here. It's still somewhat primitive. Let us know when your ear starts City, getting right? sweaty. It's like when you do an interview with the BBC, you have to just say something and let it hang in the air and wait, hope the other guy picks up <laughs> okay, the thread. Okay. Hi, James. How are you how doing? How are you doing today? You f- hey. You, you feeling awkward with everybody talking over each other? You guys have seen those <laughs> engagement graphs that YouTube sends you where there's about a drop off of 50%. Yeah. 
I think we're below 50% of our audience now because of these, this long-winded introduction. Folks, what we're going to be talking about is teaching <laughs> yes. yourself art. I'm yeah, taking over James this podcast. Over. Since you want to take over this episode, can you tell us what we're going to be talking about today? Well, let's talk about who's listening first. Okay. I'm imagining that there are some young artists who are thinking, how am I going to learn art? My parents are against me mm. doing this art thing, and I know I can make it work. But I need a lot to learn. It's tough going to art school right now. I got to find other options. But there might also be some people who are mid-career or older who are doing art for the first time or who want to improve their skills and want to know how can they uh, teach themselves or how can they learn outside of the normal art school mode. It's, uh, and, and I think that's something we, can, we all have some thoughts about and some experience with. So, maybe it's a good topic. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great topic. I think this is good not just for the people that are not going to school. I think this is something that uh, artists should be doing even if they are in school. You should con be constantly learning even if, you know, you're in a class where a teacher is presenting to you what they think you should learn. You should follow your own interests as well, your own little side paths of what you're interested in and, and constantly learning on your own. Um, doing your own research and and then after you do your research, you ask your teacher questions about what you learned and all that. So, yeah, this is good for everybody, not just the ones that are not in school. Yeah, I think when someone is in school, uh, they are developing habits that they'll use through their professional life, hopefully. One of which is I think it's valuable to have at least 10% of your time and your interests channeled into something that you're doing totally on your own. So, for me, when I was in college before going to art school at UC Berkeley, I was making gorilla masks. I was learning how to cast latex and how to make teeth out of fiberglass. <laughs> and I made myself a, a mask in between being a regular student at the university. And, you know, all through my career, I've also felt it's been really important outside of the normal work you're doing to do something else, uh, you know, not only sketching, but other things and developing new skills uh, on the side. Yeah, you exemplify that. It seems like just if a person who doesn't know your background can see that you have got such renaissance interests. You're a sculptor, you're a photographer, you're a filmmaker, you draw, you paint, uh, you're an educator, uh, you've, you're a family man, you've run your own business, you're a fiction writer, you're a, wow. a paleo artist. I mean, the list wow. just goes on and on for the stuff that you are known for. So, this started early, huh? Yeah, this, well, I mean, I always liked a, a whole bunch of different topics. And when I was a little kid, I would, you know, practice casting lead and I'd make kites and make gliders and model ships. And I would get fascinated by a topic for a week or two and then uh, learn how to do it and then go on to something else. So, it's kind of a a, a grazing approach, but it's also a project-based learning. And that's something I'm a real believer in. I mean, that it raises sort of a, a philosophical question about what's the best way to teach someone something or to learn something by uh, having a series of projects where you, ha you have to figure out the skills so you can have a result on, your, on that individual project. Or do you have a, uh, a core curriculum approach where you say, here's the series of classes every student must take in this order in order to be fully educated? Or do you have free electives and let the student choose? Like, how, how does that, what works best in your experience? There, there needs to be a combination of the two, but if I were to choose one, I would go with project-based learning. Um, 
because the stuff just sticks better. You know, it, it, instead of memorizing, you're actually just applying stuff and you're learning as you go with real examples. You know, you experience the problem, you experience the solution versus just reading about it or hearing someone talk about it. Which is the way you've learned about business, yes, right, yeah. Stan, and also about AI for developing the, uh, uh, you know, the Proco 2.0 yes. and all that. You, you didn't take a course or go to college for that. You figured it out figured on your own. I figured it out on my own. Um, but I don't think that project-based learning does necessarily means uh, doing it on your own. I think you could have a teacher who is in charge and is guiding students through the project and fills in uh, gaps of knowledge as they run into problems. That's a better approach, I think, than just like, you go do it on your own. You have a problem. You got to figure out your own solution. You got your own, you know, try to find your own resources. That's what I, that's how I learned business and that's how I learned, you know, all these other things. But, and that's why I'm not a professional at any of those things. I don't think I'm like, that great at business. I'm I'm definitely not that great at AI. I mean, I know the the the, the tip of the tip of the tip of the iceberg. Um, you know, all, all the bad stuff that comes from being self-taught is what I have with with that. You know, I, I didn't have someone guiding me through. Mm. But but you are a businessman. You, did you ever see Robert Rodriguez, the the film director? Did you ever see his ten minute film school? Where he walks into this classroom and he says, okay, how many of you want to um, become filmmakers? Yeah. And they all raise their hand. He said, forget it, you're <laughs> wrong. You are filmmakers. As soon as you start thinking that way, you're, you're well on your <laughs> way to success. Question. Make a business card. Put your name, your name, filmmaker. Yeah. And in a way, you know, we're, we're all artists if we, if that's what we want to be and just we take on the, take on the name and do it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that that mentality needs to be there. Um, whether you're going through through a school, you have a mentor with you or not, or if you're really on your own, you have to have the mentality that you are on your own and you need to figure it out. But I think someone who has that mentality and has someone there to help will get there much quicker. Now, I want to hear maybe from Marshall on this because Marshall, you've taught in various settings. You've been a student uh, and you know how it works. You've probably been in programs where there is a core curriculum that all the students follow. Are there pros and cons to using a real core curriculum approach? The biggest con with the core curriculum is that students get bored because it takes so long and they are not seeing the product develop like you work on a pro uh, project together. And you see the project develop and you feel like a sense of ownership with it. Whereas it seems so often with a core curriculum that you got people who are in a hurry to get it done. Just get me out of this military training so that I can be in something I want to be in. That's the biggest negative, which is emotional. The biggest problem I see with project-based learning, which is where my heart is, which is where my bias is because it's the way I learned, is that you will get the project done, but there may be gaps in the training that you never did learn how to do that because you didn't need to for that project. Yeah, it's interesting to me to look back to the 1930s when the Disney Studios was figuring out how do you teach animators. And the way it started was they were figuring it out you know, on a project basis, but they all developed you know, basic skills. And Art Babbitt, who was one of the best animators, uh, realized they needed better figure drawing skills. So yeah. he hired a model in his own house 
And a lot of the animators would go over there in the evenings. But word got out. There was a lot of gossip about, oh, he has nudes, you know, over there. And, <laughs> and Walt Disney called him in and said, this is maybe a bad for our studio to have you doing this. Why don't we bring, you know, the whole art school into Walt Disney Studios? And they realized just plain art training didn't really work for this new art of animation. So, they had to uh, bring in Don Graham and Rico Lebrun and some people who could understand the idea of action analysis and how to figure out how do you capture a, a moving figure and how do you do, you know, working out the squash and stretch and all the aspects that, you know, uh, the nine old men eventually worked out. But they had to figure out not only how to do the animation, but how to teach the animation. But you see how you just said that they, they brought in these other teachers to teach them. They had these resources. So, that's what I'm saying is you, you have to have both. You have to have the project-based learning but not do it on your own. You have to do it with uh, someone to guide you so, to fill in your gaps of knowledge quickly so you don't have to spend years figuring something out on your own when someone can just show it to you. Yes, and can save you the uh, headaches and the, and the blind alleys of trying to figure out something like casting a, a life mask in plaster with no books to guide me was was a dangerous and, and difficult <laughs> yeah, proposition. Right. Uh, and luckily, uh, we all survived. Uh, but it would have been great if I had a, a teacher who could show me how to do that. Yeah. But um, let me maybe should I talk a little bit about my path and how I ended up becoming interested in self teaching. That's what I'm interested in. Yeah. Because I was, you know, I started doing calligraphy and illustration in high school, riding my bikes to the print shops to uh, offer my services. And I started working for uh, an advertising company doing paste up uh, in the mid to late 70s before even going to college. I wanted to go to art school, but my parents advised me to go to university first. So, I went to UC Berkeley. I didn't take any art classes. Uh, but I majored in archaeology and took a whole lot of other courses, just stuff I was interested in, not worrying about what I do for a living. And then I went down to uh, Southern California to go to art school. And at the time, uh, Art Center was probably like a lot of other art schools where they really weren't teaching uh, real space illustration. They weren't doing figure drawing, but they weren't doing anything with um, uh, talking about lighting or art history or architectural history or not even design history. There was none of that there. Um, and so, uh, I would, I, my heroes were people like Norman Rockwell and N.C. Wyeth and some of the earlier people that I, I knew from old illustrated books. And they weren't teaching that. They also weren't teaching plein air painting or outdoor sketching um, and a lot of other topics that were interesting to me, figures and landscape. So, I dropped out of art school and came up with a kind of my own uh, – curriculum that I made for myself. So, on Tuesday, I'd do cast drawing based on what I read about the uh, French Academy, how they all taught. And then I got a, a membership at the zoo and went over to the zoo to sketch the animals, the live animals. And then I got a membership over at the Natural History Museum and went there to sketch the animal skeletons. And I realized I was getting experiences that nobody at the school was getting at all. Huh. And uh, and it was just a great way to learn. But I had to kind of structure it and I came up with these study books to um, kind of write down all my notes and keep track of what I was learning. This is the Los Angeles Natural History Museum that you're referring to? Yes, it is. Yeah. They had, I don't know if they still have it, but they had a really good uh, skeleton collection. Have you gone in there? Do they still have that? 
James, I've lived in there. I've been there probably 70 or 80 times and they, they, they almost shut it down for a few years and then added a lot more to it. So, it's even better than it was uh, 15 years ago. Okay. So, you know about that and, and they love artists. And if you talk to the, uh, the biologists or the paleontologists there, they're, they're happy to invite people into the back room to look at the study skins, which for people who yeah. don't know what that is, uh, they have like all the birds they have in the form of little stuffed birds or laid out flat in their flying position. And you can, um, uh, you can work from those directly if you know what you're interested in, if you have a specific interest. Uh, and that was really helpful to me when I was living in LA. And uh, it's something that I think art students should do to supplement is to go to natural history museums and to have those resources. Yeah. There are some art schools that have these things. I mean, like in RISD, they have a nature lab and a good set of human and animal skeletons. Uh, and there's cast rooms at uh, Grand Central Academy and at PAFA. And so, and it's great if a, if a school can have these resources, costume collections, weapons and props. Um, and the, the real benefit, I don't want to bash art schools because uh, there is something about the community value of the mentorship between teacher and student, the being in the same room. I mean, pre-pandemic we're talking, uh, or post-pandemic, uh, the friendly competition that you get with other students and the critiques that you get, which only, I think, work well in person. But Stan, I'm interested in how you plan to deal with these kind of interhuman things in uh, the Proco 2.0 format where you're you're inviting people in as teachers and people in as students and you're you're trying to come up with a, a format where people can give each other feedback to their work. I think personally and I don't I don't see the future. I think that um this isn't just an art education problem. This is an education thing, right? This is where education of anything is headed. Um it's headed online. And the the world is going to be changing very quickly regarding education, I think, in the next 10 years where um, my vision of it is that it'll become a little bit more decentralized where we don't – we no longer rely on individual schools to hold a group of students, give them a, a, a selection of teachers – and then at the end of it, give them a certificate where instead it'll be a little bit more global. It'll be um, where the community or, you know, the industry decides what teachers online, what um, websites online, what, you know, what universities online are, you know, accredited, I guess you could say, not literally by the government, but like they're approved and they're in the system whatever that system ends up looking like. And a student can hop around, you know, instead of having to pick, uh, you know, this one history teacher in this one school they're part of who they don't like or has a bad reputation, they can go online and look through thousands of art history teachers and pick the one they like, take, a cla take that class from them, get that credit, go somewhere else, take a character design class from a master of character design and, and, and create their education in this way and it's still a, it's, they're still part of a system, right? But it's a more, it's, it's a decentralized system so there's more freedom but I personally don't think we should remove physical interaction. 
I think we should take the best parts, the, the, the strengths of the online free world and then take the best parts of the physical world and keep those because there is something to actually meeting up with people and having a common interest and interacting with them. Do you think there could be some kind of hybrid model yes. where you have this whole online community and interaction and uh, the student-driven choices of their curriculum so they can learn what they want to learn in a structured way, but then have some place they can go where if they want to draw from an actual cast, not a, not a video or a photo of a cast, or if they want to look at a real skeleton, they can go there, uh, they can borrow or rent a costume, maybe they can get free passes to an art museum and get gather up with a group and go look at original paintings. Mm -hmm. um, maybe they could have uh, someone a certain day, someone could bring some chimps or some wolves or something to the to the actual location and they can draw from real life. I mean, if you could supplement a, a virtual education with, with those resources, I think you'd have a, an unbeatable combination. Yeah. So, the examples you just provided, I actually think those will are best online still. I think that you can have a world where augmented reality is good enough that the these resources, the, these things you can look at are real enough. You know, augmented reality technology can improve quite a bit in the next few decades where that that bird you saw in the museum, you put on a pair of really awesome glasses and it looks like that bird is actually right there on your table. And it looks realistic, you cannot tell the difference except when you reach out and you actually don't feel it there. That I think is not something that we need to keep in real life. The thing we need to keep in real life is the, the human element of it. You can kind of also try to do that in augmented reality where people have these avatars and they're walking around together. But that, I, still, I feel like that's going to be the most difficult thing to replicate. And that's going to take a long time if it ever does happen. You know, there's still something about, you know, seeing your friends and giving them a hug and, and then, you know, handing them your sketchbook and they, they look at it and flip through it. Um, that feeling, you're actually holding their sketchbook. Um, you draw in, in their sketchbook. Like, there's something to that. There's, it's a very human element that I, I, I think is going to be very difficult to replicate offline or online. What do you think, Marshall? Well, as I'm listening to you two, I'm, I'm formulating what I've been thinking for a long time and solidifying it. I have never had more concentrated classes than just this last round of online classes. The critiques are concentrated. They are they're efficient. Uh, I love it for feedback. The thing I miss is hanging out at the Natural History Museum and the Page Museum and the Getty and the Huntington Gardens and the Norton Simon and the other places around here. That's, that's what I want so that instead of having a classroom, the virtual classroom serves classroom needs in my opinion better than an actual classroom, better than the physical space because it's so focused. But there's nothing to beat what you were just talking about, having your sketchbooks and, and hanging out at museums and uh, saying, come over here, I want you to see this. There's just something about that as a social balance to the online experience. I agree. And the structure for uh, bringing about that in-person contact can, be, uh, can start out online too, just like with the Urban Sketchers group has uh, chapters in so many different cities and it's a, a good way for people who are the plein air painting groups that meet each other and then go out on location. And uh, that can be part of a bigger structure that, that you set up with 
what you're doing or what other people set up with other virtual things. But I, I think the pandemic uh, will change if, in many ways for the better a lot of aspects of education and art school education in particular. Really the first thing to go, that the least necessary thing, is the accreditation part. I think that was obsolete or unnecessary even when we were in school. No one ever asked to look at my degree, my art degree. Yeah. And I, I don't think it matters. I think it's your portfolio that matters. And uh, and the problem with accreditation from what I've understood from art teachers is that you have to um, present your proposal for a class to an accreditation board, which is beyond the school that approves your class or not. And uh, And then the teacher usually doesn't own their own material and... There's just a lot yeah. of problems with the structures as they as they stand and how do you grade things and how can you possibly justify the huge, huge expenses for art schools. So, yeah. I think there's I a way it. to do it where art schools can run much more efficiently and provide much, much better services for that kind of in-person human contact that you're talking about, Stan. Yeah. And the accreditation thing, yes, like we don't need it but um, – there is still benefits of it, like you know, parents <laughs> are more likely to send their 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 kids to a school because they get a degree, um, you know, to a formal system. You know, they don't parents don't trust their kids. They they think their kids need to be in a system that that shoots them through to the path of to success. Um, instead of just saying, "Go ahead, figure it out on your own. Good luck." Parents don't like that. They want to have some kind of security and if there is some kind of system, not necessarily a system that leads to a degree, but it's some kind of system that parents trust, that there's actually structure in this, a more free structure, but there's structure. It's structure that could lead, guide a student to success. Um, I think that could, it is best of both worlds where everybody could be happy and the instructors get rewarded for the quality because students pick them. The students get more choice and freedom and the parents are happy because their students are, are in a structured environment. How was it with you, James? How were your parents about it? My parents were, I was the youngest of five kids. So, by the time I came around, as long as I wasn't getting into major trouble, my parents were fine with me being an artist. <laughs> and I did, I got good grades in school and uh, they were a little worried though when I told them I wanted to go to art school after finishing at Berkeley and... I went down there and I dropped out after two semesters because it was so expensive and I wasn't learning what I wanted to learn. And I was starting to get offers to do other work for an animation studio. But I um, I took the summer off with my friend Thomas Kincaid. At the time, we were just a couple of dropout art students and we rode the freight trains across America. And, and that was what led to that book, The Artist's Guide to Sketching. Um, right. But my parents were terrified. My mom took out a, a life insurance policy on me. I don't think they were worried as long as I survived that. And there were a few close calls, but uh, but that experience was was really galvanizing for me. And when we got our proposal accepted by Watson Guptill to write a book, and Stan, you mentioned you ordered a copy, so so you know what we're talking about. Yeah, I ordered one last night. Okay, so this book was um, sort of our manifesto for. Uh, drawing and painting on location. One of our heroes was Andrew Wyeth, who's completely self-taught, I mean, no formal schooling at all. Uh, and uh, all of our heroes were, were self-taught. Our Adolf Menzel, who was uh, tormented by his other students, so he left school. Beatrix Potter, who was raised by a governess, apart from other kids. And 
James Montgomery Flagg, another hero of ours, he said, art cannot be taught. Artists are born that way. Wow. They educate themselves. And, and Mort Drucker of Mad Magazine, these guys were all um, self-taught. And and so, we, when we came back to after this railroad adventure, we came back to art school, it just seemed so weird and artificial to us uh, to see all these students that were stuck in these classes breathing marker fumes and, you know, doing their stupid assignments. <laughs> Huh. <laughs> I didn't expect to hear that from you. And I, did, I didn't know that James Montgomery Flagg and that Mort Drucker had not uh, had, had kind of done it on their own. I mean, I, I know them, but I didn't know that. One thing about them, about all those artists is that they, their work doesn't look like anyone else's. Frank Brangwen, he's another artist who's self-taught, um, yeah. is that they don't really look like they're from some standard school. Uh, and there's a, there's a, there are great artists who did go to art school, uh, Norman Rockwell for one, John Singer Sargent um, is another. But I think because they were always learning throughout their life, they were always growing and changing anyway. But I'm taking us off the track of, of your thought. This was about whether your parents were okay with you. But since you were the youngest of five, if you weren't getting in trouble, they figured that nature will just take its course, but put an insurance policy on him. <laughs> Yeah, they were they were really good parents for me as a kid growing up because they let me make a mess in the workshop and I was I was not a real social kid. I was always off doing my own projects and uh, I never really even saw anyone draw or paint. I mean, this is before I didn't have uh, access to um, what's the name of the guy that with the wig that does or the the. Bob Ross. Yeah, I never saw any of his stuff. <laughs> the way. <laughs> uh, or, uh, or John Nagy or I found, found out about since. But so, I, I, it was such a magical thing. No one in my family drew. When I got to art school and I actually watched someone drawing a figure, I went, wow, that is insane because it was so different from the way I thought you, people really drew. Yeah. So, it's, it's kind of funny. That's one thing about being the age that me and Marshall are is that trying to find any examples of someone actually making a picture was such a difficult thing back then. And um, even finding books was hard. You'd go to used bookstores and try to look for some new gem or some new nugget of wisdom. But uh, there, the amount of effort you had to go to was huge back then. Not that way now. And it seems to make a big difference that you, it, the, the term we've been using is art parents, as you know, is that when you say, I, w I like the way this artist does it, and you've got several of them, you ingest that. I mean, I really see that with you with the, with the pre-Raphaelites and with Norman Rockwell and others, is that you had people you loved and you studied them until how could they not be a part of your, your way of doing things? For the most part, most of my art parents, as you call it, were people who were from the distant past, you know, Alphonse Bucca and Jerome and Bouguereau and, yeah. uh, and of course, the Golden Age illustrators like Leyendecker and Cornwell and Pyle and, and Rockwell. But there were a few living artists who I, I admired so much I had to seek them out. One was John Berkey, oh, yeah. who was, uh, never left his studio really in, in Minnesota. He's since passed on, but I had a chance to meet him and see how he worked in his studio. He was very gracious. And then Tom Lovell, who was uh, also kind of self-taught, he told me. He really, he went to Syracuse, but he learned what he learned on his own with mm -hmm. his friend, uh, Harry Anderson. And uh, he represented kind of a, a living exponent of the golden age spirit of illustration. And since as a kid, I, I was so anachronistic anyway, all my heroes were at least 50 or 60, 70 years old. I didn't really care about whatever style was current at the time I was growing up. 
Hmm. Uh, and I didn't really, I w- like I wasn't, most of the people at Art Center were interested in Mark English and Bernie Fuchs and Bob Peake and I didn't even know who those guys were. <laughs> yeah. And uh, when I worked on the on the film with Frank Frazetta, I wasn't familiar with uh, Frazetta at all. Um, huh. So, that was, I just never ran across his work before. So, most of my heroes were much older. Yeah, well, at least those ones that loved Mark English and Bernie Fuchs and that bunch were in love with really good illustrators, really great graphic design kind of illustrators. Yes, I've come to really appreciate them since. And that whole mid-century period was really interesting how they were trying to keep their work relevant and exciting in competition with photography in the magazines. Um, But I, I just wasn't... I think when I got to art school, everyone kept telling you, you have to develop your own style. It was all about style and having a style that stood out. And I, I, didn't, I wanted to get rid of style. I wanted to be as faithful to what I was looking at as possible. And I think Interesting. Um, the, the art theorists who I admire the most, you know, people like John Ruskin and, and Asher Durand uh, talk about, at least when you're a student, to try to paint what you see as truthfully as possible and to eliminate style as much as you can. Because your style will develop, develop naturally, just like the way you learn to laugh you don't want to study that. You want to, that should be something that comes naturally. Yeah. And the same should be true. If you go to, if you go to an animation convention, you see everybody's drawing the same kind of character models because they're all looking, looking at each other or looking at whoever's the current hot, you know, character designer. And I think it's much, much better to look at, uh, cartoonists and, and caricature artists and, and art illustrators from, you know, a hundred years ago, Heath Robinson or yeah. Sullivan or Heinrich Klei. I know you had that great Heinrich Klei sketchbook you went through. And uh, draw your influences on people from the distant past. Yeah. Hey, there's another thing about your your art and your style is that you are a good cartoonist. And people don't think of you as a cartoonist. When you draw those little drawings at the beginnings of people's book, you did one for me that... Uh, and it reminds me that Norman Rockwell was quite a cartoonist, that people don't think of him that way, but when he kept it to very simple line, it was a, a beautiful cartooning style. Related to what you were saying about the you know, style um, and how, you know, just looking at that one new hot artist um, and copying their style, I think there's a, um, I don't know if I'm butchering his name, Haruki Murakami. Um, there's a quote that I really like by him. He says, if you only read the books that everyone else is reading, you can only think what everyone else is thinking. Wow. And that applies to style because I think it's really about diversifying who you look at in order to create your own style. It's not just about looking at somebody else. It's about looking at all these different sources and being able to think about a lot of different things and and creating your own thing out of it, not just something that was a hundred or two hundred years ago and bringing it back. You know, it's it's about looking at many things, combining them in your own way. Yeah, I agree, and I think that you you draw inspiration from often a series. It's natural to have a series of mentors that you just try to copy their work initially. Uh, like I remember, I, I met Ian McKay. You know, Ian McKay, the concept artist. Right when he was, he had illustrated a book and he was coming out to California. He was hoping to get into concept art, but he was copying uh, Muka and uh, Zorn and copying all these artists he admired. 
and um, and sort of absorbing them into his bloodstream. And then when he would draw, at first it would look like their work, but then it became his own really quickly yeah. until he you know developed a very distinctive approach. And there's people who've tried to emulate that, but you can't because he's drawing from very rich soil. And Kim Jong-gi is another one who I know you're very interested in, and I am too. I think he's done some amazing stuff. But he's also just absorbed many different things when he was younger and has gone on to just have the most original imagination. I have a bunch of specific questions about your education, unless you want, unless you have a, um, a path you're trying to go down, James. No, no, go ahead. Uh, ask away. So, you were talking about how, y- you know, you, you, the way you structured your education was going to museums, going to zoos, you know, a lot of drawing from life, basically, studying nature. Um, and so, that's one element. I'm curious about... Um, I have two two major questions. You know, where did you learn the fundamental principles? Not just like the anatomy of birds or or you know these these things at the zoo, the things that's the animals at the zoo, <laughs> um, um, or you know looking at clouds, but like fundamental principles, things that we discovered, like perspective, the laws of light and form and gesture, like all these things that people teach and that you. You know, you can learn them from from nature, but it's difficult. You have to all kind of reinvent the wheel if you're doing it just from nature. Did you study from books? Did you have a mentor? Did you take workshops? Where did you get that information? Well, as far as drawing uh, accurately, which was what I was trying to learn early on, I learned perspective from a book on uh, perspective. I think it was a Walter Foster book called Perspective Drawing. Okay. And uh, Drawing Made Easy, which was a book from the 1920s by uh, Lutz that uh, showed you how to draw the geometric kind of envelope around a shape that you want to draw and then break it down into smaller and smaller uh, forms. That was a really influential book. Then reading about Norman Rockwell starting when I was about 10, the Arthur Guptill book on Norman Rockwell Illustrator uh, goes through his process from start to finish. And I actually tried to emulate that by bringing over the neighbor kids and doing a thumbnail sketch and a charcoal study and a, a color study and do the whole Rockwell method, the charcoal full-size cartoon and then the, the final thing. As far as cartooning, there was Jack Ham's books on uh, animal yeah. drawing and on yeah. cartooning, which I, I did a few copies from. Um, the lettering that I learned was from a, a book on uh, burgling on uh, art alphabets and lettering. So, they were mainly all from books is how I okay. – in trial and error – most of those books you've mentioned are books that you have recommended from the Dover collection too, right? I mean, a number of them. You have that one link on Gurney Journey where those great Dover books which get reprinted from other publishers, a number of the ones that you just mentioned were on there. Yes, uh, Dover has republished a lot of the books that were really influential to me. Stan is asking about how you got the fundamentals and when I, I spent yesterday going through your two books. Uh, your two instructional books, Imaginative Realism and Color of Light. And at the end of last season, as you may know, we recommended some of our favorite books. Uh, Stan mentioned yours and I agreed that everybody should have them. But I forgot how much is in those books. I mean, you have jammed those things full of fundamentals about painting and composition and process. Uh, So, However you got it, it seems like you did the mother bird thing where you did all of this pulling stuff out of these old books and then managed to consolidate it 
into two books. <laughs> yeah. Your books are like uh, Walt Stanchfield's uh, Drawn to Life books, but for illustrators and with high production values and with lavish color illustrations, mostly yours. But yeah, that those two volumes seem like they really sum up a great deal of what you mined out of the Dover books over the years. Yeah, it's a warmed over rehash of a lot of the people I admired, uh, books <laughs> I admired, uh, Figure Drawing for All It's Worth by Loomis. Yeah. Creative illustration. Um, oh, yeah. And these were the books that came up the top seven when I ran a, a crowdsourced poll for mm -hmm. the best art books for teaching yourself. Figure drawing for all it's worth, the two Loomis books, and then successful drawing was number three. So, Loomis had the top three spots. Yeah. Bridgman's Life Drawing by George Bridgman, The Practice and Science of Drawing by Harold Speed, mm -hmm. Constructive Anatomy by George Bridgman, and then Fun with a Pencil by Loomis. So, Loomis and Bridgman really dominated that list. I would add to that Vanderpool. I, I really think Vanderpool is one of the best for figure drawing and he yeah. was a big influence, I think, on, uh, on Lion Decker as well. Yes, he was. He was Lion Decker's teacher. So, all these books are really good, but I want to, I want to make a broader point for a second and that is the absolute importance of drawing from observation and from what you see, drawing accurately, and then uh, drawing from memory and from imagination. And I think that's the thing that's really overlooked in a lot of the otherwise excellent um, ateliers, the barg-based atelier uh, training that a lot of people are doing. Yeah. Trying to evoke what people are, were doing in the 19th century. And they're doing a great job of the cast drawing and the figure drawing. But what they're missing, and I think what they were doing in the 19th century, was focusing a lot on um, building an imaginative picture. Because basically, all this was building toward the Prix de Rome, which was a, a competition to do something for an illustration that was pre assigned from mythology or from the Bible or from classical literature. And to do that, they had to sit in a room, if they were the finalist, draw a whole composition out of their heads, and then execute that with models and references. And when they uh, had their social time in, you know, sitting around in their attics in Paris, uh, the American and French and all the other students would be doing uh, illustration games where they'd have a preset topic and they would uh, illustrate it. Uh, Howard Pyle did this also with his students where they would come up with a theme and everyone would use pen and ink to draw it out of their imagination. And then if you, were, if you had the one that was chosen the best by everybody, you got Mr. Pyle's drawing. Uh, and, and that imaginative part is, I think, really, really vital uh, in an education. And I think it's often missed, unfortunately. It's like Instagram challenges, but way back then. <laughs> oh, it sounds wonderful. Yes. They called it Pre de Rome, Pre de Rome, right? Is that, that the one? The Pre de Rome, yeah. exactly. Yeah. yeah, but now it's just like Proco Challenge and, and all the, you know, all these other challenges that are Instagram and you get the, there's a guest judge and you get their art <laughs> and there's a sponsor. It's like they, they were doing all of the same stuff. Yeah, and part of the community that really meant a lot to me when I was in those art school days was uh, at the apartment building where I lived called the Golden Palm Apartment. It was mostly uh, comic artists who were there and illustrators. But the comic artists uh, were really fantastic at drawing out of their heads. They could draw anything at any angle. Paul Chadwick and Ron Harris uh, and, and a few other folks. And so, we would get together and we did this one thing that was really outrageous. I don't think I can publish it online, but the E.T. sketchbook 
where we had the, all of the rejected designs that Steven Spielberg couldn't use in his movie huh. uh, for the E.T. I mean, they're really, some of them were really outrageous. But we just passed the book around and we would have sketching games. We had the Planet X pet shop where we draw all these aliens. Uh, and we'd just sit around, someone to make a potluck dinner. And that's where I met my wife, Jeanette, uh, who's also an artist. Right? We, she was an art center student. And I realized, hey, I don't need to go to art school because I can just read her notes from the good classes, <laughs> ignore the boring classes. Wait a minute. And we'll get two educations for the price of Wait, one. Wait, so she went uh, to school and you didn't. She graduated. So you got the structure from her. You you got the the kind of all the, like a list of all the stuff you need to learn, all the notes so, you, yeah. you cheated, she was James. Doing you cheated. <laughs> yeah, no, I just got the good stuff. I got the pure drop. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's awesome. Okay. So, that's there's this a secret. This explains so much. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I got one more question about how you got, um, you know, how you recreated a, a school on your own. Um, and that's the feedback portion of it because that's, that's really important. Um, was it just through hanging out with... You know, with, with friends and then, you know, you, you said um, you were, you went on trips with Thomas Kincaid. Did you guys give each other feedback? Um, like, how, how did you know what was wrong with your drawing at, at the end of the day? Okay, that's great. Well, as far as learning to paint, I, I couldn't paint at all, really, to be honest. Uh, I didn't know color, I didn't know painting. When I started working as a background painter, I got fired once from uh, the Bakshi Studios because my stuff was so lousy and I, I just couldn't figure out how to paint. Um, I luckily got rehired and Thomas Kincaid was, was the other background painter. And we uh, learned on the job. Well, he already knew how to paint because he had painted since he was a kid. But I figured it out. And you can kind of see the learning curve when you watch the backgrounds in that movie. It's, it's a 1983 sword and sorcery animated film. Um, and Tom and I were always razzing each other and giving each other feedback, if you want to call it that. But talking about a work that we liked or didn't like or why something was working or not working. And the other person that I really got a lot of feedback with from was my first my girlfriend, then my wife, Jeanette. And she, uh, to this day, has been my most valuable person for giving feedback. And the only time I get mad at her is if she's not totally honest with me about what's not working. <laughs> and um, she'll sometimes hang back until I'm really ready for a crit. But uh, she's the person that means the most to me. And, and uh, there were other people at the Golden Palm, uh, Paul Chadwick and Ron Harris and a few others, Bryn Bernard, who I could bring a piece to and uh, run it by them if I wasn't sure or if I needed a model, if I needed someone to pose or take a pose real quickly for something. So, that kind of real close personal friendship with people um, is probably, the, I think, one of the best things about um, either living with a bunch of artists, having a bunch of them nearby, or being in art school, or if, if you can create, if you can bottle that and do it online, uh, that's valuable too. Okay. That's great to know. You're, you're letting us know you did not do this alone. You did it in dialogue and in a community with people. Did Thomas have formal training? No, he didn't. He went longer in art center than I did. He went four semesters okay. before he left. He had a mentor figure when he was younger. Ah, okay. Guy named Glenn Wessels, who was influential to him when he was younger. I didn't have any such. I, mean, I had some graphic arts teachers in middle school and, and a cartoonist teacher in middle school who were who were helpful to me. But basically, I, I just figured stuff out on my own. And I I'm, I think that's one thing that I think young artists have to decide when they're deciding on a career. Do they want to work on their own? Uh, in their own studio as a freelancer, in which case you have to be used to 
being resourceful at uh, figuring out what you need, what you need to learn, how to improve your work. Um, and uh, or, or do, do you want to work in a studio with a whole lot of other people? It's, it, I'm glad I had the experience of working in a studio because it's amazing what it's like to have that shared effort of a group of people all working toward a larger goal yeah. and to watch the dailies where your backgrounds are just part of a scene where the animators have done the animation on top and the musicians have, uh, have composed music to go with it and there's dialogue and actors and it's just, it's really exciting to see all that come together as a group effort. But I, I, I was offered a chance to work at Disney Studios after that and I just didn't want to do that. I, I think I, I admired Frazetta's uh, independence as a uh, freelance illustrator and you know he was uh, an inspiration too for for me to launch off as a paperback illustrator and wow. nobody at art school ever mentioned that you could do paperback covers I, I realized that after I left the art school what a trip you can kind of know a person by what they're willing to say no to and you were willing to say no to the big animation studio to do the thing that you knew you wanted to do or that you felt like was a better fit for you yeah, usually a door will open when you close one that you don't really want to do. I, I had tried so hard to get movie poster work and album cover work, which is where most of the illustration work was coming out of Los Angeles. Yeah. Um, and I, I hadn't gotten any work from the publishers in the East yet. And I finally got a call from an art director and he wanted me to do this, I guess it was a Black Sabbath cover with a, a priest in chains drowning and hmm. this monster figure, you know, about to kill him and bite his head off. And I thought, I called up the art director after he offered it to me and I just said, you know, I, I'm probably not the best guy to do that. I tend to do more cheerful stuff <laughs> and I don't think it's going to be very convincing. And he said, oh, I don't feel too good about this cover either. So, I, <laughs> but I felt really bad. I told Jeanette, I said, I just turned down the first real job that I got offered uh, and then the very next day, I got a call from the art director at National Geographic, uh, which led to doing a whole series of a dozen or more uh, <laughs> illustrations of, of archaeological scenes for the National Geographic. And that was what really led to Dinotopia and all the other things later was, was working for them, which was an absolute dream come true. Wow. Wow. That is a story worth hearing. Let me ask you guys, what, how do you know, you've been in contact with a lot of younger students now and you probably think about where they are and what they're looking for in comparison to what you were looking for when you were their age. Yeah. And how is it different now, do you think, for people if you're 18 years old or 16 or 22 or somewhere in that range and you're trying to figure out who you are as an artist, how is it different now with the fire hose the internet yeah. uh, flooding you with with possible possibilities well golly i've got i've got a lot of thoughts about that but your your term of fire hose of the internet <laughs> is the first thing that occurs to me is that the onslaught <laughs> of how many people are out there trying to do the same job that i'm trying to do uh, but then the awareness of how much art is being produced and how many artists uh, are being used to do this art it's just it's the difference between a simpler construct back in our time and a much, much more complex, thousands of times more, more developed. So, I empathize but it's always changing, James. That's the main thing is that every five years there's going to be something new that turns it around. So, I, I, there's a, there was a statement from who are those two guys that stole the DNA discovery from the woman who discovered the... Do you know who I'm talking about? Crick? 
Yeah. Of uh, Watson and Crick? Watson and Crick, yeah. I think it was Watson who said, have fun and stay connected. Never do anything that bores you. And that last part of never do anything that bores you doesn't always hold up because we have to do some <laughs> things that bore you. But he was in a position where he could say, don't do anything that bores you. And there is something to that. If you insist, I will only do that 80-20 thing. I'm going to put my 80% of energy into the stuff that is going to do the 80% of feedback. That would be have fun and stay connect connected. Enjoy the work, enjoy the pursuit of it, and also be in touch with other people who are doing the same thing. And that is a big enough abstract maxim to apply back in the 1940s, 1970s, and 80s, and now. I have an opinion on the fire hose thing. Um, I think that it's it's both good and bad. <laughs> there's positives and negatives of the, the fact that there's so much to digest. There's so much available. Um, the bad part obviously is that, you know, students now have a harder time figuring out what they should watch, what they should digest. There's too much. Um, they can't possibly watch everything or read everything. Um, but I think that's a good thing because, I mean, we just mentioned, you know, that, that I quote, that quote I mentioned, you know, if you're reading what everyone else is reading, you can only think what everyone else is thinking. So, having all of this information means that people are diverse in what they are consuming. And that means artists are going to be different. If we have one system where everybody's studying the same thing because it's like, you know, a, a system that all these colleges have agreed on, like let's everybody does the Barg method, everybody ends up being the same artist. And so, this fire hose, I think makes it more difficult, but the outcome is better because we have more diversity. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think along with that fire hose of variety and diversity is an interest in visuals and illustration and in, uh, in comics and in uh, fantasy and science fiction films that definitely didn't exist when I was coming up. There was Star Wars and then a little later there was Dark Crystal. And, but there really weren't that many fantasy films back then. And there weren't that many uh, opportunities, definitely in the, in the margins of the interests of society. And uh, it's exciting to see how in the, you know, 40 years since 1980, uh, they've become all the top grossing films and how the <laughs> public is so much more interested. And there's so many young fans who are interested not only in the final work, but in the process. Uh, and there's, you know, kids know about green screen and they know about compositing and they know about all this stuff when you're, when you're 12. And, they, you know, this is a golden age right now. And sometimes when I visited art schools uh, after the books came out, uh, the students would tell me, wow, I'm so glad you were positive and encouraging because all the guys your age who come to our art school are like saying it was better back then. And I really feel, and they, and they ask me, they say, well, w when would you really, if you could be alive at any point, when would it be? <laughs> and I say right now because yeah, there really are um, so many opportunities to break into a field now that didn't exist in a world of gatekeepers when you had to send samples to an editor you hoped would notice it or be interested or publish your work. And uh, I think it's still very important to show your best work and to be consistent and, you know, to build what it is you want to show on the online. But um, there's so many ways you can monetize your work now that didn't exist before too. So, it's, it's definitely a better time now, but it is different. And I think you have to, you know, it's like having an infinite 
a smorgasbord of food that you can eat. You have to discipline yourself not to eat everything or you can yeah. start gaining a lot of weight. And in, in terms of being becoming an artist, I think you have to decide, okay, I'm going to really focus on one thing for the next hour and I'm going to turn off my notifications or whatever and I'm going to just do that. And, and you can't become an artist by just watching videos. Yeah. You really have to get the pencil out and push it around and keep sketchbooks. Yeah. The purpose as an artist, the purpose of consuming is to create. It's not to collect. Um, it's really, you only consume to help you create something new, to come up with new ideas, to understand things better so that you can then create something of your own. It's really easy to get into the collector mindset and just like try to learn as much as possible and, and keep going in that direction. And become like a librarian. Right. And we've all seen students in our in our course of going to various sketch groups and things who are who become kind of professional students. And that's okay. I mean, because it's good to, to keep going to courses. But I remember going to a couple where they say, well, that's, you know, I, I start laying out my palette and they say, well, that's not how Daniel Green does it <laughs> yeah. you know, or whatever. And I say, well, sorry, this is how I do yeah. it. Um, there's, a, there's a funny story of Joe Demers, who is an illustrator from the kind of the 50s and 60s, uh, when he, he was a very young prodigy and he didn't go to art school at first. He uh, managed to get a kind of a, a messenger job at Cooper Studios, which in New York was the studio doing advertising work in the 50s where all the hot illustrators were. And he, he got to, you know, travel around with their delivering their work, but he also got to watch them paint. So, he watched Kobe Whitmore and how he could paint a whole two-figure scene in, in about an hour and a half and how he mixed his paints and, and he, got, he got a little bit unconfident. He was doing a pretty good job himself learning by watching these masters. He thought, I better go to Art Students League for a while and learn how you're supposed to paint. So, he went there and the first class he went into was Frank Riley's class where he said, well, you have to mix out 10 strings of values or 10 values for every color and you got to mix out a hundred different patches of paint and that's going to take you about two hours to mix your palette. And he, he was watching this kind of uncomprehending and he said, uh, Mr. Riley, that's not how they do it. That's not how they paint. You know, you, and, and Riley was kind of offended and he said, well, maybe you should just go to the Cooper Studios to learn instead of coming here. Then, uh. uh, <laughs> you know, years later, Riley contacted him and, and so, he said, I have your name here as one of the most notable uh, illustrators and can I list you as some of my my favorite students? <laughs> and oh, uh, he said, sure, go ahead. That's fine. Huh. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> and I think there's a, there's, a, there's a risk in some schools and with some teachers to create what we used to call at, at art school, we'd call artificial grief. And what that is, is like there was one teacher had us spend three weeks drawing a perfect circle. And then he spent the next five weeks doing a grayscale. And it's just like, come on, this stuff is not that hard. You don't need to, I disagree with Malcolm Gladwell, you don't need 10,000 hours to learn a skill. If you can learn how to learn efficiently, you can learn that 10,000 hour skill that someone takes someone else that long in about 40 hours or 50 hours. <laughs> but it's all how you approach it. That's a big discount. That's a huge. Yeah. Well, there's an economic incentive for schools to keep students enrolled for as long as possible. Yeah. And uh, I, I once met this guy who was putting together an animal curriculum, animal drawing curriculum, and he said, I said, how long is your course of study? He said, it's going to be 12 years. I said, 12 years? 
to learn animal anatomy? He said, oh, yeah, that's, that's what we need to go through all the muscle insert insertions and the names of the bones and everything else. I said, 12 years? What if you get a really promising student that just absorbs everything you know, <laughs> you know, in, in the first six months? Uh, do you, does he still have to do the 12 years? And he says, yes, he, he will have to go all the way through. Yeah. And I said, well, aren't you going to lose the best students that way? And he, well, he didn't really want to hear that question. Yeah. Well, that's an, that's a good insight though. You would lose the best students by demanding that they take longer to do something that they've already got. I think that um, students need to understand as they're learning from these different resources, they need to understand the difference between principles, concepts, and techniques. Um, because teachers teach all of these things, but they're different. You can, you can absorb them and, and you, you should absorb them in different ways. I know the difference between uh, techniques and the other two. But when it comes to principles and concepts, principles I think are even uh, in some ways more abstract than concepts, right? They would be more like guiding wisdom and concepts would be ideas that could be turned into technique. I'm guessing. You're exactly right, yeah. So, I guess let me explain the difference to, to the listeners of principles, concepts, and techniques. So, principles are the laws, right? These are the, the rules. The, these never change um, based on any circumstances in your environment, right? Like the, the way light hits form, right? The laws of light, like that, that's the law. Like you're not going to ever change that. Um, uh, so, th that's a principle. It's always true. Uh, concept is just an idea. It, it can be an opinion even um, um, and it could be proven true but maybe not always. It's just, it's an opinion. It, it's, it could have overlap, overlap with principles I guess. So, I guess let me give you an example. We'll stick with the laws of light example here. A concept would be something like the darkest light is lighter than the lightest dark, right? That's not a law. That's not a rule. Sometimes that's not true. Right. Right? You can have metallic surfaces where the, the shadow, parts of the shadow are lighter than parts of the light. Um, and so, but you could, as an artist, you can apply that concept to your drawing and still follow it, break the laws of light and follow this concept to get a specific look, right? So, that's a concept. And then, a, a technique is something that works only under specific conditions. It, you know, you change the circumstances and it no longer works anymore. For example, cross-hatching, right? You can use cross-hatching to shade halftones, um, show the, you know, the lightest light and the darkest light, whatever. And you can apply these principles using the technique of cross-hatching. But then if you change your medium, if all of a sudden you're using watercolor, well, cross-hatching doesn't work anymore. It's just a technique that's under the specific circumstance of a pencil with a sharp tip. Um, you know, it's very specific. Uh, so, that's the difference between the three. And you have to understand that if, if an instructor is very heavy on teaching technique, that you're not going to be as strong of an artist. You're going to be a lot more fragile. Because if, you, if you're more focused on principles-based learning, you can create your own techniques based on the principles and you can adapt to, to things um, much more efficiently, effectively. That makes sense to me. 
Yeah, like an example might be uh, an example might be the core of the shadow, the the or the hump or the bump in the shadow, <laughs> the darkest part of the shadow, right after the form turns past the terminator. And it's, some people just do that as an automatic technique because it makes the form pop. But if you think about and analyze the lighting, there's times when that doesn't exist, yeah. and, and and where an indirect light, for example, or overcast light, right. you're not going to see that at all. So right. you can't really rely on those techniques, even though they might be give you flashy results. Sometimes you got to understand the the theory and the concepts first. Uh, and then figure out a, a technique to apply them. Yeah, exactly. That's the technique like at Watts that they teach. Good observation. Yeah, some people make the core shadow hug the edge of the form too. Yeah. And other people will put might put the core shadow right there in the front or even make it uh, go over to the rim light side. Yeah, in the old art books like by Solomon Solomon or Harold Speed, they would talk about the practice and the science. Right. And the science would be the, what we would call the theory or the the concepts of the principles. And then the practice would be the actual putting it into use, doing a technique. Uh, there's an old story about uh, Howard Pyle who uh, once had his students watching him. I think Frank Schoonover was watching him do a painting. And Pyle decided not to talk much. He just was just going to do this whole illustration start to finish. And Schoonover quietly watched and rapt attention. And at the end of the Two hours, Pyle said, well, um, Mr. Schoonover, did you learn anything? And he said, oh, yes, Mr. Pyle, I learned so much by watching you paint. And he said, no, you, you didn't learn anything at all because all the important stuff was and he tapped the side of his head. He said, it was all up here and that you didn't see. Yep. And when Pyle, the, the, his students always said he never talked that much about technique. He only talked about not just the principles of lighting or the theory of composition, but he talked about story. And he talked about projecting yourself into the painting and what was it like to be uh, a, a peasant in the Middle Ages and to be uh, out in the cold outside of the castle door and to need to get in. And he, you know, he would, he wouldn't um, really, I mean, of course, he was getting students who already had training from the Philadelphia Academy, um, a good traditional cast drawing and, and painting te techniques. So that, that was a given. But he really felt that the key to teaching was, to focus on those intangibles of why we're making a picture. I think one common maybe mind virus that everybody seems to have these days is that everyone gets talking when they're teaching about the brush strokes and the paint they're using and the, which part they're laying in first. And what they're not talking about, I, I hope it's not important to them, but they don't always talk about it is, what am I trying to convey? What about the space I'm trying to convey or the character? or the situation? What does it say about life and death? Uh, and and I think that's what was so great about Pyle's teaching that made him such a, a legendary, one of the greatest art teachers of all time was that he really put that emphasis on what was going on in the picture and helping his students to go beyond the mechanics of the picture making to living inside the picture. Yeah. I, I sense that in Pyle's work. You know, I think he's also a, a greater illustrator than he's sometimes given credit for because his because N.C. Wyeth so overshadowed him as a student. And of course, he had his ups and downs like like Wyeth did. He had his, his years where he wasn't as good. But some of the understatement in, in those pictures is so powerful. They just get better and better the more you look at them. And the thing with Pyle, I think, is that he was doing about two or three hundred pieces per year in his prime wow. years around 1900 and 1905. Uh, and some of them were pen and ink drawings, but he was doing at least 
two or three paintings a week. And I, I asked Pyle scholars, how come there aren't more studies and sketches and preliminary work? And they said it's probably because he was so often working directly from the model. So the model would come into his studio, he'd have his rough sketch, and they, they would pose and hold the pose, and he would do the painting right from the model. So there was no intermediate pre, uh, sketch. And if he, there were times that he, both he and N.C. Wyeth worked without the model at all. And you can yeah. tell, you know, it really shows. Have you seen that quote from Van Gogh about how much he admired uh, the Howard Piles that he saw in a magazine? Yes. He studied, he collected the magazines from America because yeah. the great illustrations were coming out of there. Yeah, Stan, uh, Van Gogh saw uh, Howard Pyle's work in a magazine. They were pen and ink illustrations and was just in awe of them. He wrote in a letter about how he was inspired to do new things by looking at this work that was so, uh, so great to him. Cool. But let's get back to James. <laughs> looking through your books, spending a day in James Gurney books, which I could spend weeks in James Gurney books, I can't help but wonder something how long do they take? They seem like they are. there are thousands of hours behind what you put into these. How long did Dinotopia... Dinotopia was your fiction book. It was your, it was your first book after the one with Thomas? Yes. How long did you spend on it? Let me start with Color and Light and Imaginative Realism since you mentioned okay. them first. Uh, thank you. Th those began really as blog posts. And once I started oh. blogging, um, I, in 2007... I did a daily blog, which I've still done to this day yes. uh, since then. And uh, it was just to download stuff that I was otherwise uh, putting into these study books, which were my notebooks of what I was learning. So, I just put down, I break it down into various topics about, say, water reflections. Okay, I'll have something about, a, a little bit about water reflections. So, I put that in there. So, when it came to writing the book, I just uh, took all that material. I thought I'd be able to just translate it straight into the book. But... It had to be rewritten and re-edited and whatnot. But what was fantastic was that I had all of the feedback from people who had read the blog post and commented on it. And I could tell immediately what was confusing, what was interesting, what was controversial. I learned things from people who uh, uh, commented and, and brought my understanding to another level. So, it was a very interactive process. And the publisher that I had worked with Andrews McNeil hadn't really done art instruction books before. I was nervous that they didn't have an editor who was experienced in that field. And I realized I had already 2,000 or so editors out there reading the <laughs> blog. Yeah. So, so that's where that came from. With Dinotopia, uh, I had never written a book before, but I had the, um, I, uh, except for the art instruction book, uh, Artist's Guide to Sketching, which was kind of nonfiction really. Uh, but when it came to writing a fictional book, I had the help of Ian Ballantyne and Betty Ballantyne who were the founders of Ballantine Books, Bantam Books, and they had published uh, The Fairies and were involved in Gnomes. And so, they, they knew about fantasy, illustrated fantasy, and uh, they kind of encouraged me to not only illustrate this fantasy world I was starting to come up with, but also to writing the story to go with it. And the challenge there was just keeping the text as brief as possible. So, most of the editing and the writing process was cutting out stuff that the pictures did a better job of conveying. Each of those books is about um, 160 pages uh, of illustrations with a color picture on each page. Yeah. And uh, most of the time went into doing the pictures rather than the words. The text is really fairly quick. So, how, how long? Oh, how long for that was about 
about a year and a half, two years for the artwork and about uh, two months for the writing. And the writing came after doing the artwork. So I did first, of course, a very detailed storyboard. I was inspired by the way Disney planned his animated films because when he started off doing animated films, he tried hiring a screenwriter to write it out in a screenplay the way you'd normally do a film plan. But he realized he needed to have artists involved in the process. So he storyboarded everything out. And I realized that would, that's the way I needed to plan these illustrated books because they were almost like a, a movie for your hands in a way. They, they had to be, um, it'd be visual as well as being a, a written story. Disney sort of revived the story uh, or, or made the storyboard the happening thing in the 20th century. And so you, you've just figured out that it was better to do it that way or were you specifically inspired by the fact that Disney did it? I was, we were inspired by Disney and I, we printed out uh, uh, pa on paper storyboard blanks the way mm -hmm. they did. They also did this at National Geographic. They had storyboard paper that the artists would use at National Geographic. I mean, if you think about illustrating for the magazine, um, you have to uh, do sketches that are comprehensive enough that they're going to win over the editor in a meeting where you've got a photographer who's got maybe a, a couple hundred rolls of really beautiful photo photographs and uh, the writer who's got a very long text that has to be cut way down into the article. And then you've got four proposals for pictures and the editor, who's not necessarily a visual person, has to be won over by your sketches. And so we would storyboard those out and do small uh, color studies and that's the only way we could we could uh, win that win the day, and because you know we didn't uh, at the point that you have the the thumbnail or the the concept sketch, you don't have the models and all the references, so it has to look fairly comprehensive, or at least close to what the final will look like. Yeah. So you're thinking visually. Yes, very much. And you know, going back to the first book that I did in 1982, The Artist's Guide to Sketching with Thomas Kincaid, uh, we uh, really came up with a plan for that book on Burger King placemats. And we were absolute nobodies who were arrived in New York by freight train. We were sleeping on rooftops and we wrote the basic outline for the book on, a, on Burger King placemats. We go to the same Burger King on 72nd Avenue every every day, write out this idea for this crazy book we wanted to do. And the editor didn't even want to meet with us. Um, we had to win her over just for a, a brief meeting. And eventually, it took a long, took about another six months or so before we finally got the contract. Uh, and it was, that was a real, as you know, because you guys have both taught, uh, the best way to learn is to teach something. And that's what we learned by doing that book is that we had to think about our assumptions and we had to explain things. And the book itself is very wordy, but uh, but it was a, a good chance for us to sort our, our heads out about what sketching is all about. There, re there really weren't any other books on sketching at the time. So, we were o operating in, in a vacuum. The publisher that you met with, she, she really had no idea what two artists she was talking to, what they would become. <laughs> Yeah, right. <laughs> no, we were nuts. I mean, we were we were wearing these these uniform shirts that we we got at this uniform store that said Jim and Tom and we our idea was in, in driving across or going cross country and sketching was we would be able to meet more people if we looked like we had some kind of job as sketch artists. Uh and when we we also wanted to sell this idea to American artists. So we went uh to uh Stephen, what was his name? Uh, the editor of, of American Artists, Stephen Doherty, that's right. He was the editor there. And mm -hmm. we had tape recordings of some of the people that we had sketched. There was one guy who was a, a bank robber in Nashville. 
and another guy who was playing his electric bass guitar in Central Park. And um, I, we would play these tapes while showing him our sketchbooks. And uh, he actually remembered uh, the presentation we did to him. He thought we were completely out of our minds. Um, but um, but eventually, you know, it t- took a lot of persistence, but we eventually got the contract. Nice. Wow. Was this book successful? Uh, it sold out as first printing. Nice. I think it was 20,000 copies. Nice. We didn't make any money. I think we made each about like $1,000 on oh, it because the contract was so lousy. Oh, my God. And, and the thing is, I have to say, there's one thing that art students should all learn and art schools should all teach and, yeah. and it should be part of anyone's education is business. <laughs> Every artist should know about contracts. They should know about accounting, basic accounting, uh, something about marketing and publicity, which are two yeah. different things. And, and nowadays, you want to learn about social media and merchandising uh, just because you've you got to understand if you're going to do this for real, you have to uh, work on a shoestring when you're starting out, save some money because the, the income's not going to be steady. Uh, and you have to figure out how to, you know, how to uh, bill your jobs. And be responsible because, you know, we're, we're in this as a business as well as, uh, as, as for fun. If you want to learn the business of art, who do you go to online that's teaching that and could even be a potential mentor? Um, there are some good books on contracts. Um, Mark Levine wrote a good one. Uh, once you write a book, you can join the art, uh, Authors Guild and they have a lot of resources. There's also the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators yes. for aspiring writers and, and illustrators of children's books. They have a lot of resources and it's a good uh, group of people who can can help you figure stuff out. And then there's, you know, as Stan knows, and Stan would be the expert on books on business, but there's, there's a lot of books that will guide you through the basic uh, tools that you need to, to just be in business for yourself. That'd be a wonderful thing to offer online is the business of art from someone who's done it and someone who knows it and make it available to everybody. But yeah. back to James. <laughs> James, you, you learned it by doing it and, and Jeanette. Yeah. I mean, I think that we all learn what we need to, to learn by just uh, solving a problem and, and trying to get up to speed. I mean, that, I think that's the way I've, I've tried to learn everything. I, I mean, the hardest thing, and I think something we've talked a little bit about so far is uh, drawing animals and painting animals from life. Uh, there were actually were academies for this in the 19th century, and they fascinated me when I learned about them. Frank Calderon wrote a book about animal drawing, and he ran uh, an atelier or an, an art school where he brought in live horses and cows and sheep. And the thing about horses and, and dogs even is they don't pose. You can try to get them to hold still, but they even if you have a handler working with them, uh, they're going to shift their weight around and change their pose. Uh, and I think that's that's a, a kind of the Mount Everest of uh, painting from life is is working from animals directly. Yeah, I know Frank Calderon's book because I've used it for decades, and I I I think it's a wonderful book. I think it's more detailed than some students, a lot of students need, but I never knew anything about Frank Calderon. I didn't know about what he looked like. I didn't never seen a picture of him working with the students. And all of that was stuff that I saw on your blog. Yeah. Frank Calderon's book um, gets into, I think, much more detailed information about the shapes of each of the bones than you're ever going to need. If you're drawing a, a cow, you don't need to know what it's, how the, the distal humerus looks, you know, and how it, you, what you need is the basics. Uh, I think what you gave in your 
animal anatomy material at Marshall is just really good simplified ways to think of the masses of the torso and the haunches and the shoulders. Uh, and that's the kind of stuff you, you really need more value. It's more valuable. Rico Lebron gave that to the Disney animators when they're doing Bambi. And uh, I think just a basic shorthand like that is, is what you really need. All those deer he did with it, where the simplified skeletons are some of the most wonderful drawings. I mean, to, to think about how people have been drawing animals for centuries and then in the 20th century, they're going to draw them and make them look as if they move. And he comes in and shows them everything about the personality of a deer. Yeah, those, those, are, are, worth, those are worth several weeks of intense concentration on them just for animal drawing in general, let alone for, for deer. Yes, and we've we've mentioned a lot of books along the way, and there's one by Richard Williams on animation, which is, for anyone in animation, they already know about this, but it's oh, yeah. the real Bible for classic Disney and Warner Brothers animation, because he got this stuff from from them, and uh, you know how to make the spine change curvature in the middle of a scene to give more snap to the animation, all that kind of stuff is is in the, in that book, and uh, Survival Guide for Animators is a is a really great book. Um, but working with animals, I, I want to mention this this course that we did is sort of an experimental workshop to draw a mythological animal, a satyr or a pan figure, you know, half half goat, half man. And I wrote up this workshop design. I said, we're going to be able to work from a live goat and have goat skulls. And we're going to have a live model, a human model come in to take the pose you want. I had no idea. I hadn't taught many classes before, so I didn't know if this was going to work. And as I got closer and closer to the class, I, I, I was starting to panic because I called up this um, animal rescue place and I said, can we bring our students by to sketch from your goats? And they said, oh, no, that would be too stressful for the goats. Uh, we uh. can't do that. So, oh, no. So, I called another place. It was a, a meat production place. And he said, well, we're going to be hauling some off to the slaughterhouse, but you can get them on their way out. And I said, that doesn't sound too good either. So, I talked to our local farmer and he said, well, you can borrow Billy uh, and put him in the back of your van and take him up to the Woodstock School of Art. It's like a 20-mile drive. And uh, I said, are you sure he's going to be okay? He said, just throw a tarp down, bring some something for him to eat. He'll be fine. So, we did. And um, we brought Billy there. The students worked from him. Uh, and uh, they worked from the model. There was only seven students, so we could they could pose the model the way they wanted. Uh, and it all ended up uh, really okay. But boy, getting Billy to pose, he was actually, he loved the attention. And uh, and the students just loved working for directly from a live animal. Hey, are you ever going to do anything where you have people uh, come to uh, a place like near where you live, where you do a week or three or a summer of studying animals? I don't know, Marshall, if I'll ever do that. Um, because I what I love the most is teaching by video. The the problem with teaching in person is that I'm not as probably as good as you guys are at working directly with students because I, I never never having had a teacher, I don't really have the voice of the teacher in my ear and I don't know always what to say to a student to help them through you know through their little uh, issues at a given moment. I'm and so it's it's hard for me to actually teach live students. Um, I like doing it, I like trying it, but it's it's very stressful for me and I have to I end up having to bring I, I make the mistake that. Some experienced teachers told me I was likely to make when I asked them about how to do this. They said, the mistake you're going to make is you're going to try to download everything you know on the student in the first hour. And that's exactly <laughs> what I ended up doing, which was useless yeah. to the students. I think 
what a good teacher should probably do, and you tell me, is come up with a real specific challenge that they're likely to succeed at, but that brings them to some higher level of understanding, and then take everything out of the equation so you don't confuse them too much. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. But the, the reason I ask is because the stuff that you put on your blog and showing those ateliers, academies, gatherings where there are people around animals, it just makes me feel like, wouldn't that be wonderful to get a number of teachers together and a number of students together and say this summer or this month, we are going to really learn how to draw animals from imagination and all. Um, we've got all the books, we've got the resources, it's just that... Uh, there was something exciting about seeing it gathered together in community. Well, we've been part of some uh, some groups, group teaching environments like Illustration Masterclass uh, up in Amherst, Massachusetts, where Greg Manchess and Donato Giancola and a few others yeah. were uh, team teaching students. It was great because the students were bringing their work in um, sketch form so that they were really receptive to feedback. And that was good. Also, we uh, I was had the privilege of teaching with the SKB workshop in Wyoming, uh, where there are a lot of wildlife artists, and they were they were mostly working from doing landscape paintings outside, and then working from photos for their wildlife art. And I said, you know what? There's a a really good taxidermist right here in Dubois, Wyoming. Why don't we ask him if we can borrow his wolf and his his uh, bighorn goat and, and bighorn sheep, rather, and mountain goat and all these and bring them in. And sure enough, the guy was was happy to bring his mounts into the room. So, we were working, painting directly from a taxidermied specimen that was really beautifully done. And it was, a, it was just like a revelation to everybody to work directly from something that was holding still, but, <laughs> but otherwise looked so lifelike. Is that near Jackson? It's not too far from Jackson. They What they did is they took all the man-eating grizzlies from Jackson and they released them around Dubois where we were painting. Okay. So, unfortunately, it was dangerous to paint there. In fact, there was a surveyor that got eaten by a, a, a grizzly right the day before we, we arrived. So, what they did is the cowboys all gave us a bear spray and said, if a grizzly comes after you, just give him a good shot of this a bear spray and, and he'll he'll probably stop. I said, probably. That doesn't sound too too reassuring. Yeah. So, we were painting, kind of looking over our shoulder and if we're lucky, we could talk the cowboys into uh, standing next to us uh, ready to shoot the uh, ready to shoot the grizzlies if they came after us. James always makes it interesting. Uh, yeah, the, the, the reason I asked about Jackson is right outside of Jackson, there's a wonderful museum of animal art that I never knew about until I went there to teach animal drawing and I could not believe the quality of art that they had in, in their sculpture and painting and they even had original Dr. Seuss. They had the Lorax in there. Uh, so, it's a little well-kept secret. Yeah, I haven't been to that museum yet. I'd love to go. There was also one out in Rochester, New York, I think for a while. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's still there or not, but they had uh, Bruno Liljefors and then Bob Kuhn and some of the absolute great wildlife artists. and. I think a lot of students that I've met in art schools aren't aware that not only is there wildlife art and wildlife painting, but there's also uh, the Guild of Natural Science Illustrators, uh, which are people who do realistic paintings, usually for museums or guidebooks of insects and flowers and mammals and birds. Uh, and there's also uh, the medical illustration group. We visited a couple of the graduate programs that are doing uh, illustrations for medical textbooks and online things. 
And uh, these are areas where art meets science that I found really exciting to, that I, I never knew about as an art student and have since uh, discovered that this is a, a direction that people who love animal work can, can pursue. What else? Is there anything else that we didn't talk about that you want to talk about? Yeah, so I have one more question and then, uh, yeah, we can wrap it up. Uh, it's a quick one. I kind of, I want to know, like, how long were you a student for? And then how, you know, obviously there's going to be overlap between being a student and then transitioning to being a professional. And maybe you can address that as well. But like, as someone who mostly studied from books and created your own education, I'm, I'm curious how long you considered yourself a full-time student. Well, I think um, it's funny. I would answer that two different ways. I would take the Robert Rodriguez approach and say I was a professional from the minute I started <laughs> deciding to drive to Southern California to become an artist. Okay. Let me rephrase the question then. <laughs> um, what, how long did it take for you to for the majority of your time to be spent on creating professional work versus on learning. Because that when you're a full-time student, you're, most of your time is spent on learning. And then when you're a professional, most of your time is spent on creating, you know, writing your book, doing your commissioned paintings. Um, that's not learning. I mean, obviously, you're learning and while you're doing that, you have to study things. You have to do research. But it's still for a professional project. How long did it take until that balance shifted towards professional versus learning? Well, I was probably, I guess to answer your question as directly as I can, there was probably a year uh, after I left art school where I was just trying to learn all these skills because my drawing skills were really bad when I entered art school. I mean, I could show you the sketchbooks and they're, they're not good. Uh, I mean, I, I had a knack for certain kinds of lettering and certain kinds of illustration, but I, I couldn't paint at all and I felt really like I had a long way to go. So, I focused on it for a long period of time, for what seemed like a long period of time, like a year, going, doing this kind of self-teaching curriculum. But then once I was working on the movie, of course, I was learning because I was learning on the job. But I was also, I had to deliver, you know, 11 paintings a week and they had to be pretty good or else I wouldn't have kept the job. Okay. And then when I was working on the Artist's Guide to Sketching, I had to sound like I knew what I was talking about. Uh, so, the writing, if, when I look back on it, is really not the best. But uh, but at the time I was doing it, I thought it's best I can do and I have to convince myself. I think as a professional, you have to have a can-do attitude, you know, and you, you have to do as best the work as you can. And of course, it's, it's you're going to improve and change as you go through life and you're going to add new skills. But I think you should always, uh, any artist who's in the business, should try to experiment with new techniques and new methods, just like film directors have to figure out, uh, are there new cameras I can use, new lenses, should I shift to digital, how am I going to use uh, AI and how am I going to do this and that and, and if you don't, you know, you, you end up just repeating stuff you've done earlier. Yeah, so this, this answer was actually very helpful for me because um, it was only a year. You, were, you spent a year until you really jumped in and you started learning on the job. That's a very short amount of time and it really shows maybe how useful that was to you that you weren't saying, I'm not ready, I still need to keep learning. You know, you you just dove in. You knew you weren't ready but you did it anyway. You just you just went in and you tried to fake it till you make it. Um, 
And so that I think that answer is extremely valuable. It was yeah. really desperation. I, I had to reverse the cash flow because I had spent all the money my parents had allotted for for college. <laughs> and then I went to art school and I had spent a certain amount of money on the two semesters I was there. And, and Jeanette and I by then were engaged and we were going to have to pay back her loans. And I tried to get freelance work. First job I, I sent my portfolio around on was to do these engraving style drawings for a, a ring ad. And the results was, were so lame that I the guy uh, didn't, hire, didn't hire me again after the very first sample. And so, I figured I, I better get better at this fast because otherwise I'm going to starve to death. Yeah. You know, paying rent, paying car payments. So, part of it is just the pressure of surviving. Yeah. It for, can force you to learn, you know. Yeah. Wow. That's a hard lesson but it's true. It, it happens with many a person is I have to do this. Not that it's now it's no longer an option. I've got to do it. Really is a big win for project-based learning. Yeah. And I think what you're doing is, is really exciting and I can't wait to see where you go next with it, uh, Stan and, and Marshall, to come up with a, a way to, to take all these ideas to give people structures where they can challenge themselves with new material, find mentors, find connections with other students. Uh, and push their ability and, and get meaningful feedback along the way and, you know, meet people that end up becoming life partners and friends. Uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a tall order and, yeah. with, you know, the challenges that all social media face with content moderation and, you know, trollism and stuff. It's, I don't know, you know, what those challenges are going to end up being in the real world. But, um, but I think the opportunities there and I think the, the silver lining with this whole pandemic period we're living through is that, uh, a lot of these tools are what was happening anyway in the world of business and in the world of education was has been accelerated so that you know people are are finding out that uh, we're people who are selling virtual art educations are doing better than ever in some ways, yeah. and people who want to get that information are finding it more available in more different forms than they ever saw before, yeah. And the way people are going to get that from you is through Gurney Journey. Is that correct? Yeah. There's. Uh, thank you for mentioning. There's gurneyjourney.blogspot and there's uh, something like 13 years of daily posts. So, there's, I don't know, 5,000 or something like that posts. Yeah. Uh, it's a strange obsession. Have you skipped a day? Uh, not really. I've done a, a couple where I've done two per day. I, I have skipped a couple <laughs> days, but Jeez, not, more than, not more than a handful. Wow. And and then there's uh, there's... James Gurney on Gumroad, which is uh, inexpensive downloads that people can get of longer form art instruction videos on everything from animal drawing to portraits in the wild to color and practice and things like that. And then there's uh, the YouTube channel uh, where I do maybe every two weeks or every mo every three weeks, I do a new video, free video. And I, I know you were talking about that recently, Stan. I also regard that as uh, just a way of building connections with people and uh, letting people know I'm out there and it's uh, it's really rewarding. I love doing videos. Yeah. Uh, so, what else? There's Twitter and Facebook too, but I've, I've probably focused mainly on YouTube and Instagram lately. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, everybody go follow James. He's always high quality content. I've been following you, James, since, since I started, uh, you know, studying at Watts. So, you've been a big inspiration in my... Uh, in my development. Thank you, Stan. And I, and I love what you're doing. And I love also the way you're sharing other artists' work. And I want to mention another YouTube channel, Pete Beard. Oh, B -E -A -R -D. yeah. 
Pete he, Beard. He did a series of videos. If you want to just expose oh. yourself to illustrators of the past, yeah. uh, he's done, I don't know, 50 or more of these. He has a YouTube channel? It's yeah. a YouTube channel, yeah. And, he, and he, he just takes you through all these different people you've never heard of, French illustrators or South American illustrators. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, we have a, a great heritage of people who've gone before us that we, we owe it to ourselves to know something about. Uh, if we're going to do this for a living. Yeah, he fills those videos just with image after image after image and little sort of little mini biographies. They're wonderful. Well, I guess that's it. Thank you, James. Yeah, James, thank you so much for coming online or coming coming on the phone, I guess. It's not online. We're on, on what do you call it? The On the cord? I think the first five years of the blog, we didn't have the internet at home. We we do it from the library oh, wow. and from wow. Starbucks. Every day. So, wow. Oh, my God. And we raised Amazing. our kids without television or the internet um, or cell phones. Nice. And they went off to college in 2005 and 2007. Uh, so, they were, they were definitely some of the last holdout. I don't think you could raise a kid without a cell phone now. No, wow. absolutely not. Yeah. My, my three-year-old knows how to operate an Android phone, an iPhone, and an iPad um, wow. he knows what a keyboard is like he, yeah, he, he, he knows how to swipe. He knows to go into folders to find his favorite apps. <laughs> he knows that I have to unlock things. Uh, you know, he knows like, Hey, Dada, you gotta, you gotta pay for this thing I want to buy. And I'm like, I just bought you the bundle. What is this? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> what we told our kids was, look, I, I don't mind if you're interested in computers and the internet, but you got to think which side of the screen you're going to end up yeah. on. You either... You don't want to just be a couch potato. So, no. if you're interested in this stuff, jump to the other side of the screen and create the stuff. And sure enough, my older son is an app developer doing all kinds of online stuff. And my younger son works for IBM as a, as a tech guy. So, nice. so they, they went for the tech option. Nice. You know, I wanted to ask you whether it was whether they admired you more because you did those books when they were teenagers. Did they figure, my dad's pretty cool. He did these books. <laughs> Well, when I was doing uh, the imaginative realism and color and light, uh, my son was in in college in Boston and um, I ran by him this idea and he said, whatever you do, dad, make it be authoritative. Uh, And when you talk about, don't don't just say this, this is one opinion, this is another opinion. If there's something that's a fact, make sure it's a fact because there's so much uh, dogma in the art field uh, uh, that, you know, I had to try to cut through some of that about color and about how our eyes move through pictures and stuff like that. Yeah. So, that was a really helpful piece of advice. When they were younger though, and I was doing the Dinotopia books, they were, you know, two and four when I started those out. Um, they were uh, not impressed at all that I did this for a living. <laughs> in fact, they kind of said, they, I remember one time my son had a friend over and they were, they were on the stairwell coming up to the studio. And my my son's friend said, does your dad have a job? And he says, no, he just sits around and paints dinosaurs all day. Yes. And his friend said, he said, he, he my dad drives a truck. I bet that he could get your dad a real job. <laughs> yes, that's awesome. That's such an honest child conversation. It's wonderful. <laughs> so, I, I agree with Robert Frost who said that my goal in life is to unite my vocation and my avocation is my eyes make one in sight. I think that's the goal of a lot of people who are even watching this. It's wanting to do the art, the, the thing they love for their art. Yes. So, go out there and do it, uh, everyone who's listening and uh, if you're still listening, maybe maybe we're editing. Charlie said, this is going on too long. Cut this out. <laughs> no, but um, 
Yeah. <laughs> but uh, but don't just watch it. Do it. And uh, and you'll end up – the less you're exposed to the, the way everybody else thinks, uh, the more your work will be original. I mean, think of Andrew Wyeth and what a unique artistic sensibility he had, like absolutely nobody else. And uh, I think there's a real value in that. Adolf Menzel also. Uh, these are people who um, who figured it all out and who broke a lot of new ground for other people later. And, uh, you know, I think we all have the ability to do that. It's like when Elon Musk hires people for SpaceX, he doesn't hire engineering graduates. He hires psychologists or people wow. who worked, uh, who explored the rainforest. And he, he knows he can train them to help him design these these systems, but he needs people that don't think the same way as the standard yeah. group. And, and I think that's extremely rare and valuable in this world. All right. Well, thank you, James, for coming on. Um, everybody go follow James. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. All right, guys. Great talking to you. Okay. Bye. See you later. Bye.